Well, as a child, more as a, as a young teenager, we had this thing at high school once where we were raising money for Teen Challenge. Some of you know Teen Challenge, an organisation which helps with drug addicted youth and other things like that. And so at Emmaus College, we had this annual event where it was a fun run. You'd go and you'd get sponsorship. Um, and then the, spon you know, the sponsorship would be towards, the proceeds would go towards Teen Challenge. But they actually um, had prizes for the people who raised the most amount of money. It was very inspiring to me. <laughs> and um, one of the prizes was a ghetto blaster. And if you're young, you probably don't know what a ghetto blaster is. But it's basically a stereo that you could back put batteries in with two big speakers. You put it on your shoulder, you know, in the ghettos in America where, you know, people lived. You could go into the ghettos with your ghetto blaster. Basically, it was a big stereo that was portable. And um, you put cassettes in it. And um, I really wanted one of these, so I decided I was going to fundraise. And I went out um, afternoon, afternoons after school for weeks, knocking on doors, asking for money. And I raised... I did this two years in a row, and the first year I got a pretty good stereo, and I topped the school, but the next year they had an even better prize, a better stereo. I did it all over again. I raised over $1,000 back in 1991. And um, great way to motivate people. But, um, you know, these are the days of the past, cassettes. And uh, just goes to show how time has changed. Now, here's a question for you. Would you rather have a cassette to play your music, or would you rather have the cloud? What would you prefer? <laughs> the cloud, right? It's way better. So with a cassette, you've got something that takes up the same amount of space as your phone. It's not very much smaller than a phone, and yet you can only fit about 10 songs on it. But in the cloud, you know, if you were to sign up for an Apple Music subscription, you could get millions of songs onto a device the same size, more or less, as a cassette. And I remember when CDs came out, what a huge improvement that was. <laughs> Definitely an improvement over records, which kept skipping, and back to front to listen to the song backwards. Yeah, a few people did that. That was a lot of fun. And um, there was, a, there was a, a heavy metal band that had put some terrible messages backwards in one of their songs. You know, people used to, it was called backmasking. So, um, and people were accusing Petra, a Christian rock band, of, of, of being satanic, and they were accusing them of backmasking. So Petra put a backwards message on the front of one of their songs I haven't got to my sermon yet. And um, you just hear at the start of this song called Judas Kiss, this noise, and then the song starts. Well, if you took your cassette apart and put it back to front and, and played it, it said, why are you looking for the devil? You should be looking for the Lord. <laughs> so, great little message. Anyway, that was all the fun you could do with cassettes, which you can't do now um, unless you, you know, you've got software or something. So, anyway, those were the days. But we've had technology. We've had advancement. And I remember in about 2004-ish, my father bought me an iPod. Now, these days, iPods are not all that special. Everyone's got phones. But back then, an iPod was way cool. Because on, this was a 20-gigabyte iPod with a, with a wheel. You spin the wheel around, you scroll and pick the song. And I could fit 10,000 songs on that thing. Now that, that was cool. That was 10 songs on one cassette to being able to keep 10,000 songs on one iPad or one iPod to now having millions of songs in the cloud that you can access here with an Apple subscription, which I don't have, by the way. 
but you know, I've thought about it at times. But that's improvement. So things have gotten better and better and better as you go along. If you wanted to have millions of songs available to you back in the 90s when I got my Ghetto Blaster, where would you have kept them all? Your room or your garage would have been piled up with cassettes or, you know, vinyl records or whatever, and you would not have been able to fit them all in. But now, you don't need any space, and you've got basically every song in the world available to you, and it doesn't take up any space. Now, is that improvement or what? It's improvement. Just goes to show you that sometimes things that are not tangible... You know, all those songs that are in the cloud, they're not tangible. Now, this morning, we want to talk about the thing that the Lord is doing that's not tangible, but they're hard to understand. You imagine trying to explain the the cloud to a two-year-old. It's hard to explain to a two-year-old because they don't have much of a sense of how, you know, what that is. So, imagine trying to explain to people the things of God. Things that are intangible, but they're so... We tend to think physical things are the most real or the best things, and then non-tangible things are kind of like less real, or we think of them as lesser in some way. But so often, intangible things are better, and they're more real. So here's a question for you this morning. Imagine trying to explain what music is to someone who was born deaf. How would you do that? That'd be pretty challenging with someone who was deaf, you know, through writing or through sign language. Try to explain to them what music is, what hearing is, let alone the things that you can hear. Or imagine trying to explain to someone who was born blind, how can you explain to them something like the aurora borealis? How would you do it? Would it be pretty tricky, <laughs> right? Um, the thing that's in their frame of reference to demonstrate. But people who are born without these abilities, it's very, very hard for them to understand. And I just wanted to say that you and I and all humans, we're born without the ability to understand certain things of God. We just... We're just not, we just don't have the frame of reference to understand where God's at. And God has done his best to try to put things into a frame of reference for us. I mean, you cannot get a better attempt than becoming a person. God himself becoming a human being in the form of Jesus to come to demonstrate God. You can't get a better attempt than that. But God's done so many things to try to explain himself on our frame of reference. But in the end, there are some things you have to trust him for and believe. And so the Lord's up to something, and I want to kind of hint at it this morning. It's very hard to hint at it, because we don't have a frame of reference to really explain it properly. It's even hard for me to understand it, let alone explain it. But we're just going to read a few, exam- a few scriptures as examples of the type of thing we're talking about before I try to more closely explain. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Dad even mentioned this earlier this morning. And this is a, a passage that it's really about heaven, I guess. Um, looking for places that described heaven. And I 
came to the conclusion in my essay that this, was, this verse that we just read was the verse that best described heaven. Because I just can So it's very hard to get excited about things you can't, you can't get a handle on, and yet they're worth being very excited about, and they're worth being very motivated by. That's heaven. What about God himself? There are so many passages in the Bible that describe God, and yet God's described in, like, superfluous language because that's about all you can do to describe God in human terms, like for him in all the earth. How do you describe a God where we've got no frame of reference for that God? Well, we just do our best. But it's like we're the blind people and like we're trying to understand things far more complicated than the aurora borealis. We're talking about a majestic, majestic God. So the only way, maybe it's not the only way, but examples of something else that's much more real. You've got to understand this because people get it back to front all the time. So, for example, if I wanted to, you know, if I went to see Mr Kilpatrick because I wanted to build a house and we were talking about the house that doesn't exist yet, we would use a plan of the house, a floor plan to discuss this future thing that doesn't exist yet. A floor plan is something we can all understand. We can look at markings on a piece of paper to get a gist. So we're using something that's kind of real. A piece of paper is real. A drawing is real. But in the end, it's more like a symbol of something that's real. Okay? That's how we... Or, we, or for example, if I wanted to demonstrate to a kid what an iceberg was, I might go pull an ice cube out of the fridge and say, a million times bigger. So we might use something real to demonstrate something else that's real, but of a bigger scale. But a lot of the times we use, we use symbols to demonstrate things that are real. So, um, and if we, were, if we were talking about, say, uh, trying to demonstrate or like the thing that God's trying to describe because it's not physical. Now God's going to use something that's physical and real to describe to us something that's non-physical but so much more real and so much more significant and so much greater. And there's an example we have in the Scripture from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 32, and it's an example of marriage, seven verses, to, to give you a sense of how this works. It says, this is Paul, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So, you know, a lot of people, they think, oh, Christ and the church, it's, it's a thing. It's just, it's, it's God loves his people, and they think that's just kind of like a less real thing. They think marriage is a real thing, 
And they think Paul is using marriage as like an analogy to kind of say, oh, God loves his church. No. There's a real thing, symbol of the great reality that's going on in, with God and the church. Christ and the church isn't just a, a kind of an analogy of God loves everyone. No, there's a profound thing happening there. This type of stuff's everywhere in the Bible. We don't even understand what that great profound thing is. We know what marriage is. That's a hint of something terrific that's going on. But we don't get all that excited about these terrific things because we don't understand them very well. Everyone wants to get married, as far as I know, everyone does. But what level of excitement do people display towards this heavenly marriage? We don't typically, and yet it's the real thing. That's one example. There are, there are quite a few, actually, in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's called Mount Sinai, or sometimes called Mount Zion. It's a physical mountain. But the New Testament talks of this mountain that we have come to that can't be touched. Are we just talking about a symbolic mountain, some kind of a, a figurative place? Or are we talking about something that's so real that God needed a real mountain to use as the symbol to point at this much greater thing. No, there's a real thing. There's a real mountain that can't be touched. And we don't even get our head around what that is. But it's there. We're supposed to climb that mountain. God's on that mountain. It's the mountain of God's presence. It's so many things we barely understand it. There's an Old Testament physical mountain to kind of give us the clue what about, and this is really the point of today's message, what about that temple that's there in the Old Testament? The temple that was there when Jesus came. Do you think God needs a physical building on earth? He doesn't really need a building. In fact, when Solomon was dedicating that first temple, he even said, oh Lord, this building, you know, the, Solomon said, Lord, the the whole universe cannot contain you, let alone this building that we have built. Do you know that the building we're in now is bigger than the temple in Jerusalem? It was only 60 cubits long. That's 30 metres. Our building's 40 metres. We have a bigger building than the Jewish temple. So, of course, it couldn't fit God into it. So why, if God couldn't fit into the building, it had no practical point of view from God's perspective, right? Well, what was the practical point of view of that temple? God used a physical thing, which was real, to point to something that's real but non-physical and much more significant. And the, the writer to the Hebrews says that Christ went into that temple and offered his life as a sacrifice. That's not figurative language. That's something very real. What's interesting about that temple is that it's a, this is the, the, the heavenly temple we're talking about, or the spiritual temple that we're talking about, is God actually does live in that temple. And it's a grand, grand building. 
but it's, it's, almost, it's not a building in the way we think of buildings, but it's grand. Now, if you've been going through the Bible videos with me, we've discussed how grand the first temple was that Solomon built. If you've listened to us discussing the amount of uh, labor that was spent to build that thing and the amount of materials, gold and timber, we worked out that materials, uh, uh, sorry, labor alone was worth $100 billion in today's equivalent wages. That would make it the most. Talking about a building, when the Bible says, you know, like, when historians describe this as the most amazing building on the planet, they're not wrong. That most amazing building on, on the earth is a picture of a grand, grand temple that the Lord is at work building. Now, on one hand, it's built and it exists, but on the other hand, it's being built because it's you and I. We are a part of that temple. In the book of 1 Peter, it says we are living stones, that we're being joined together to become a house for the Lord. So there's a grand, grand structure, greater than any physical building, greater than that temple in Jerusalem, and it's made up of you and I. We're a part of it somehow. It's an amazing structure. But the problem is we're so ignorant because we're deaf and we're blind and we don't really get all that excited about it because we can't understand it. We understand it kind of. We understand it because God put a physical building into the earth and we know what those are. And we know that that temple on, that Solomon built was pretty fancy so we, we say to ourselves, all right, God's doing something pretty fancy. But we don't get excited about it because we haven't seen it. But God's trying his best in the scriptures to help us see it. It turns out that this building is not only made of God's people, but the foundation of the building is apostles and prophets. Isn't that interesting? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this building. And you thought that was all just an analogy, but there's something about us, our lives being built together, which is a grand building in the way that God thinks about it. Or maybe it's something so about something God was doing in the joining of the lives of people together and then a sense of what this building is at the end of it. Because you and I are actually called to help build the building, believe it or not. It's not just that this building exists, and it's not just that you're a part of the building, you're actually called to help build it, interestingly. So let us read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Actually, if God was going to build a house for himself, what type of house do you think it would be? If, God was, if I was going to build a house for myself, what type of house would I build? No, I'd think to myself, well, I'd like something with enough room for the family. I'd like something which is, you know, spacious enough, but not too spacious that I have to do a lot of cleaning, or my wife has to do too much cleaning, or us together. But I want something that's comfortable. I don't want to have yeah, the bedroom down. We're putting it like that because that's human terms and human language. But yes, God's building a house suitable for himself. It's the house he wants. And let's read about it. So if the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, 
Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were one, who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, for he himself is our peace who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We'll stop there for a second. So far it doesn't sound like much about buildings or houses or temples at all. But there's these two groups. There's one group who are far away, the Gentiles. There's one group who were near, the Jewish people, the citizens of Israel. There's one group who were the uncircumcision, the Gentiles. There's one group who are the circumcision, the Jewish people, the Isra people of Israel. There's one group that were excluded from the covenants, the Gentiles. There's one group who were included in the covenants, you know, Israel. But now, through Jesus Christ, he's taken these two groups, he's taken the Jewish people and everyone else, and he's made them one group. There was a wall of hostility it mentions here, but through Christ that wall was smashed down. There's no such thing as a that all human beings, regardless of whether you were descended from Abraham or not, could be one group in Jesus Christ. And the last verse is the one that's up there on the wall. It says, for through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. The we is all of us, both groups. And now we're going to keep reading from verse 19. Consequently, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to be a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, God's building a building which is rising and it's made of apostles and prophets it's made of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. It's made of you. It's made of Jews and Gentiles joined together. It's made by the peace of God, reconciling people to him and reconciling us to each other. This is something pretty grand. And yet, how many times have we read that verse and not thought very much about it? And even now, how little of a sense of it do we get, unfortunately? And yet, you are a part of a grand house. It says here that this house is rising. That's pretty amazing. It says we are going to be the dwelling place of God. God's making a t the type of house that he's living in, that he wants to live in. And the type of house I know that God would build would be pretty special pretty amazing and he's making it out of us isn't that incredible and the point is i guess the point of this whole message is not only to teach you 
how to try to think about these things not as less real but as more real but also the point is that you're called to help build this house and that is what this apostolic message is all some of the rest of us have been trying to do our best to preach it too but not as well but it's all about this building this grand house for the lord Back then, there were two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, and they, they couldn't get along, mostly because the Jews didn't want, didn't want them to be included, but the Gentiles had their problems with the Jews too. But through Christ, that you can't imagine two groups that would have more difficulty being reconciled to each other than the Jews and the Gentiles. Do you know how hard it is to reconcile two groups when they don't want to be reconciled? And yet miraculously through jesus christ these two groups were reconciled and now through the blood of jesus christ we're believing that this apostolic message will bring god's people to the place where they will have one heart and one mind you see the work continues there are so many denominations and groups we're supposed to love one another we're supposed to be of one heart and one mind this is the apostolic message and it is the building of this grand house that rises on the foundation of these apostles and prophets. And you're supposed to help build it. Now, if you're not very excited about it, you're not going to do too much. I know that if, um, if you were building your own house, you'd be excited. I know I used to work for Scott Kilpatrick. I worked for him for seven years, on and off. Um, different times and I always enjoyed working for Scott he's a wonderful guy a, a friend of mine and I know that people when they're having their house built get interested in their house <laughs> and quite a lot of them will phone up the office every single day to find out how it's going and to just build the house they're interested in it because they see what's going on it affects their life and they're involved. They might not personally be picking up the hammer to build it, but they're involved in the building process. If we could only get a sense of this building that the Lord's building, we would be so motivated to be involved in the building process. And we're supposed to be involved. This is a house we're supposed to be a part of helping to build. But so many people are not because they haven't got a, a sense of it. And as I explained, it's hard to get a sense of it because of the grandeur of it. But we have a sense. You're called to build the house. We don't have time today to go to Haggai chapter 1, but that's your homework to go and read Haggai chapter 1. Because there's a scripture where the people had just returned, the temple had been destroyed, they're at the point of rebuilding it a second time, but the people were too busy building their own houses and they weren't getting involved in building God's house. Well, it's very easy, it's not very enjoyable sometimes. So we don't get as involved. But that Haggai 1 passage is a call to you to not only build your own house, but to go and build the Lord's house. Last week, I said to you that we need to increase the pot plant that we're planted in so that we could be more fruitful. And I suggested to you that one way of doing that was to attend prayer meetings. Well, that is the way that we help build God's house. It's not the only way, but through prayer, through our faith, through joining our heart to each other, 
prayer essentially, when you boil it right down to its most basic elements, it's you caring for the things that matter to God. If there's things that God is doing and you care about them, that's what your prayer is. Your prayer is saying to the Lord, Lord, let your will be done. You care about it, so you say to the Lord, it matters to you. You endeavor to move his heart, although his heart's already moved. You're endeavoring to move your own heart in a sense. But prayer is the outworking of the things that matter to you. And, as in, and the truth is, as you begin to pray, they actually begin to matter to you. They matter to you a little, but as you pray, they matter to you more. The heart of God comes to enter into you more when you pray. Some people wait for things to matter, then they pray, but sometimes you'll never pray if you do it that way around. So if we're going to help build this house for the Lord, we've got to pray. That's one of the main ways, and it may even be the main way that we will do this. So last week I was suggesting that people should get into prayers, and we had some people join prayer meetings this week that hadn't been before or hadn't been for a long time, so that was great. We even had a primary school child from the church join a prayer meeting, and well done, good effort, and let's see more of that. And I just think that's so encouraging. Well, what those people did this week is they participated in building this grand house of the Lord, even though they might not have known that that's what they were doing at the time. But what an amazing thing to be a part of. So I put it to you that you should join in building this grand house of the Lord. It's easy to look at what we're doing here in the church, you know, our building, and think, oh, this is exciting. Something's going on. There's, things are changing. How exciting. The future's going to be better. Let this building be a picture to you of what the Lord is building. It's just it's a terrible illustration because what the Lord's doing is so much better. But yeah, we're getting some new carpet. That's exciting. We've had so many people volunteer their time to paint and scrub floors and other things. Your participation is just a clue to the, to the next type of participation, which is building the Lord's house. It's the building of his church. It's the joining of lives together. It's the seeing of people saved. It's the gospel power touching people and changing them forever. It's their children growing up to know the Lord instead of growing up to not know the Lord. It's the flow-on effect in history over hundreds of years where generations will follow Christ instead of not follow Christ. It's the changing of a city of Rockhampton because of our effort and our prayers combined with the prayers of other people that will, this city will be different in the future because we're helping to build the house of the Lord. It's other cities in the world that will be influenced by the example that Rockhampton will become because of what we do. So yes, life could be a bit mundane as you go to prayer meetings and then you go to work and you do all these things, but as mundane as it may feel at times, it's so significant. You can't believe how significant it is. So contemplate your role in building the Lord's house. Not just helping out around here, that's important too, but in helping what the Lord's doing at a much deeper level. I just want to say something about prayer meetings before we close, and I'll invite our musicians to come back. And I'm going to pray for you at five o'clock for many years, which is a more difficult time than six. Six is a pretty good time. Um, 
Because even if you start work at seven, you can still go to pray for half an hour before you've got to leave to go to work at seven. So six is a great time. But not everybody can do it on Zoom. Some people are out of town. The internet's not so good for them. So we're working on a process of getting our meetings um, live and on Zoom, what Justin calls hybrid prayer meetings. And so we're going to work on that, and over the next few weeks, maybe even next week, we'll give you some details. But as well as that, there, there may be some people that just can't make it to a 6 a.m. prayer meeting, but you could make it at another time. I want to hear from you because we'll start another prayer meeting. If you can make it at another time, you tell me, and you can become the leader of that new prayer meeting, and we'll try to round up one or two more people to pray with you. We can start some more prayer meetings, and it may be that 5 o'clock in the afternoon is good for some people. Work is finished for the day, or 6 o'clock at night, one or two evenings a week may be a good time for you. If that's the case, let us know. We'll put on some more prayer meetings to get as many of you involved in prayer as we can. So, you know, in the early church, it said they were of one heart and one mind. That's praying together. That's what that is. It says they were always meeting together at the temple and breaking bread and meeting in each other's homes. That's praying together. That's what that is. So that's what we need to do as well. We're going to see the glory of God if, we, if we're able to find grace for this at a new level. So let's come. I'm going to have a prayer. And um, then we're going to sing and worship the Lord. But my, my thought that I leave with you is, is that you, you're a builder. So build. The Lord's put in your hands a tool or tools. So use them. The calling that you've been calling. Paul described it as a heavenly calling on a number of occasions. That doesn't mean it's a less important calling. It's a real calling and a more important one. And it's not just the preacher or the preachers that have been given a heavenly calling. It's you too. So Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would take the words that have been used this morning and place them into every heart, like an arrow even. Lord, you said in the book of Jeremiah that your word is like a hammer that heart this morning be smashed by this word of God. Lord, that your word is like a fire that burns, that it can, that Jeremiah said it was shut up in his bones. He had to proclaim it. Lord, let your word now be like fire in the bones of people here. Lord, you've given us a heavenly calling. Forgive us that we have made less of it than what we should. Lord, to pray. Lord, I pray that we would have grace to carry this apostolic message we've been given and give us grace to be a prayerful people to see the hand of the Lord at work in our congregation, in the church of the city, in our city, in the nations, in Australia. Lord, help us. Lord, we're so weak. We're just children. Lord, we need your help. Lord, in the end, we, can do, we can't do anything unless you help us. And you said in John chapter 15, without me, you can do nothing. It's so true. But Lord, you're here. We have you. You're with us. Look. Let it not be in vain. Let you, Lord, build the house as we also build the house. Lord, raise up your people. I pray our love for one another would increase. Our knowledge of the Lord would increase. Give every heart understanding. Lord, let the body of Christ love one another in the city. Build your church. You would now minister to them by the Holy Spirit's power and bring them through to the place of grace and breakthrough. Even children who are listening, Lord, let them take up the call to prayer. 
So, Lord, have your way with us, we pray. We bend the knee before the throne of God. In Jesus' name, amen.